Amen. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Tay and the whole team. Hey, before we get to the scripturing, I just wanted to point out one thing. Um, in the last few weeks since, uh, since Tay has taken over, um, our YouTube channel has like eight, nine, ten new subscribers, which is awesome. You're able to track on YouTube, you know, how many views, and, and views are kind of defined weirdly, but you can do the views along with like the, the average time watched per video. And since she's taken over, our average time watched of each service has shot up along with the views. And so I did a little bit of research and, and I looked at actual the amount of time that every service was being watched. It's mostly just the song service. Anyway. <clears throat> We'll be dealing with that in staff meeting later. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Got to step up my game, I guess. Our text for the day as we work through the book of Acts is chapter 4, verses 1 down through 31. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, <clears throat> they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called him in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, "What is right? which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges." As for us, we cannot help speaking about that what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go because all the people were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with hearing with understanding, with obedience, and with action. Lord, may you hear our prayers. May we bond together in crying out to you for you to not only be present, but for you to be powerful to work through us as a church family so that the name of Jesus will be lifted high and heard and experienced and embraced. Father, for those of us who are gathered here in this room in these moments, I pray for your spirit to work, to teach, to instruct, to overcome disbelief or doubt. Lord, to focus us in the midst of perhaps distraction of the cares of this world. Lord, for those of us who are unsure or intimidated or just a bit cowardly in our faith, we pray for boldness, a desire to please you and not seek the favor of mere mortals. Lord, for those watching online now or at a later date, Lord, I pray the same for your spirit to work, to take your word, your message, and to implant your truth deeply in hearts and minds for response and obedience. As always, Lord God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to work, to speak, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus is lifted up and it is in his name, the name that is above every name, the name that is only given to us for the name of for the way of salvation, the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O oh Father God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Very special welcome to those joining with us online today. We're so glad that you are a part of the Oak Park family today, uh, or even at a later date if you're watching the recorded version. Remember, you can participate on, in, in real time by texting in comments, questions, prayer praises, or prayer requests to 805-481-7092. And if you're watching the recorded version, please text in as well. We will respond to you as soon as we can. Thanks for being with us today. All right, so here's what's going on in this story. It's, a, it's, it's the fulfillment of our story from last week. The two, two of the 12 apostles, Peter and John, they're still good Jews. They're believers in Jesus. They've, they're, they're, they've been commissioned by Jesus, but they are still practicing Jews. And what did practicing Jews do? Well, they did all the Jewish worship rituals and routines. And one of those was to go to the temple at, in the afternoon for the afternoon prayers. 
As they're going to the temple for the three o'clock prayers, they are met right outside the gate by a man who was lame from birth. He was a beggar. He was a professional beggar. He'd been doing this for decades. This was a part of his daily routine. This was a part of daily life in Jerusalem around the temple. Those with infirmities, those who were, were lame, blind, crippled, um, had other deformities or disfigurements, were actually, by Mosaic law, not allowed inside the temple, but they were allowed to sit outside the temple as, as, a, as a way of, of income and, and mercy and grace for those going in to worship. As they're going into the temple, this man reaches out to Peter and John, and he's, he's begging from them. It was just their normal, typical routine, but God had something else in store for that average routine day and that average routine trip to worship. This is what happened. Peter said to the, the beggar, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Just, just pause there for one second. The man was over 40 years old. We have no idea how many years he had been placed right there at the gate of the temple, seeing thousands upon thousands of people walk into worship, him never being allowed to participate in that way. It was probably years, perhaps maybe a couple of decades, he finally gets to go in. Isn't that incredible? That's almost more of a miracle than the healing that's more of a blessing than, than the, the restrengthening of, of ankles and feet and legs. It's absolutely incredible and overwhelming to think about. And, and Luke records that the man was actually jumping because he was so excited and he was so filled with joy. The man, as I said, was over 40 years old. He was a well-known fixture at the temple. His healing was an undeniable miracle. And as such, people gathered around. In the course of a given day, there were thousands upon thousands of people in the temple. The, the temple itself employed about 20,000 priests, not all at the same time, but that was on the work roster for the temple. They usually worked in different shifts, and so there was, there was two to 4,000 priests active in the course of a given day. That's a lot of priestly stuff going on. It's a lot of sacrifices and rituals, routines, and all of the things that happened. So the temple was a hustling, bustling place with thousands of people. And all of a sudden, a man who is well-known, who is well-recognized as being lame and being unable to walk, is able to run and jump and praise God. He created quite a stir that large crowd began to gather more and more people assembled. And so Peter and John began to speak. Peter especially once again proclaimed Jesus as the one who was crucified and who was resurrected from death. And as such, he is the Messiah. 
Over the course of hours, the message was preached. People would come and go. They would hear. They would believe. They would receive. They would, they would, they would follow up. It's a logistical nightmare. 2,000 more believers in the course of one singular day. And Luke notes that it was just men because in this section of the temple, only men were allowed as well. 2,000 more men believed in Jesus added to the 3,000 from the day of Pentecost. Within a few weeks of Pentecost, more than 5,000 are recorded here just as men. If you include women and children who are probably now a part of this new community of the people of God who, through belief in Jesus, the numbers could have been between ten and 15,000 within the first month to five or six weeks after Pentecost. The population of Jerusalem is unknown at that time. There's estimates that it ranged from 60 to 70,000 to 110, 120,000. If we just do nice round numbers because I'm a preacher who went to Bible college, there's no math in Bible college, so we've got to keep the numbers simple. If we just do 100,000 and there's 15,000 people in Jerusalem who now believe in Jesus, that's 15% of the population of the entire city. This Jesus thing was getting out of hand for the leaders. The leaders of the temple did not like controversy, conflict. They were very conflict-averse. Because the temple was the epicenter of Jewish worship, it was highly guarded, highly regulated, highly controlled. And the Jewish people had a tendency to, to cause trouble with the Roman leaders, the, the Roman nation that occupied them. And so the, and, and almost all of the, the trouble the Jewish people caused were, was religious in nature because the Romans did not respect Judaistic practices. And so the temple authorities were very quick to qualm any possible controversies or uprisings. They didn't like seeing people making statements and, and, and drawing crowds and creating controversy. So they had Peter and John arrested, and they were thrown in jail for at least a night. This was serious because what was going on under their purview as leaders of the temple had to be addressed. Because first off, you have a person who was healed. Now the worldview back then is very different than our modern worldview. Nowadays, um, we're very skeptical about stories of healing or miraculous works or things like that. We have a natural default as, as modern Westerners to be very dismissive of those kinds of things. Um, although our culture is reverting back to kind of a pre-modernistic worldview, hence the popularity of ancient aliens and ghost hunters and the, all, all of those different paranormal activity shows that, um, that are just, they keep proliferating. The world of the supernatural obviously does exist. Modern Western mindset has kind of dismissed it for, for a couple of centuries now, but, but it's kind of coming back. And still, in the majority of the world, the idea of miracles happening, the idea of the spiritual intersecting with the natural, 
and impacting things within the natural realm is still very much part and parcel of of the daily view of life. And in the biblical worldview, that was certainly true. Even in his ministry, Jesus had been accused of, of having the power to heal through the power of Beelzebub, the, the, the chief or the prince of demons. You see, the, the, the power was very real. And as miracles are happening in the temple, the religious leaders are saying, all right, a miracle really happened. What source of power is now operating in the temple to bring this about? Jesus had been accused and Jesus had refuted those, refuted those claims. And now Peter and John are healing. They're saying, it's in the name of Jesus. And the religious leaders are saying, we don't like that name. We have a bad history with that name. <laughs> Do you want the same thing we did to him happen to you? And if you don't, stop talking about him, please. But the power behind that miracle had to be ascertained had to be dealt with. What's even more intriguing about this is in Jewish political life, there were two major religious political entities. One group was the Pharisees. These were the very strict religious, kind of the pastoral class, the the religious leaders of most of the population. They controlled the synagogues. And every town had a synagogue where where the Jewish faithful would come and worship every Sabbath. The temple, however, was controlled by a different entity, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were very wealthy. They were very politically connected. They were the ones who had integrated much more with the political structures of Rome and, the, and, and all of that intrigue and that, that whole world. So they were very intricately involved in that. And the theology of the Sadducees, while still Jewish, was very different from the theology of the Pharisees. And one of the biggest differences is that the Sadducees basically essentially ruled out everything in the supernatural realm. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They did not believe that a resurrection from death was possible. It was not a part of their theology. They just dismissed it outright. The gospel writers even take note of that. And so here you have a, a two people working a miracle in the very epicenter of Jewish worship that may be from, a, from an evil source of power. And even if it's not from an evil source of power, they're doing it in the name of someone that you have helped execute, someone you have dismissed, someone you have already uh, condemned as not the Messiah, and you've condemned him to death, and now you're saying he rose from the dead. Never get in the way of people's theology, right? We get very offended when our theology gets challenged, when the way we like to view things, when the things we believe get challenged, we're very naturally defensive. That's what happened here as well. The group that interrogated Peter and John is the Sanhedrin. It's the the official Jewish ruling council 71 of the most senior, most elder, elder, um, um, not elderly, but elder uh, type of leaders of the Jewish community. They handled pre- pre- predominantly the, the religious issues that would come up for the people, but they dealt with political stuff as well. 
These are the ones who controlled Jewish life. Peter stood before them. He did not cower. He did not buckle. He did not mince words because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised his disciples, you're going to get arrested. You're going to be brought to trial. You will stand before leaders and authorities. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit will not only be with you, but will be in you. The Holy Spirit will give you the words, will give you the courage, will give you my message to them. So Peter and John, they go from preaching to the, this, the, the, the common man, the everyday Jewish worshipers. And now they are preaching to the very leaders of the entire Jewish socio-political religious machine. Their message is exactly the same. You crucified Jesus. God raised him from the dead. And because of that, salvation is found in no one else. Because no one else has fulfilled the prophecies. No one else has followed God's plan. No one else has risen from the dead. That is the trump card. That is the end all be all. Throughout history, we've had religious leaders who have taught some wonderful things. We have had religious leaders who have lived very holy and pure, devoted, righteous lives. We have religious leaders who have done wonderful things and they've inspired their followers to do wonderful things and to be, to be at peace and to, to, to do all these good things in the world. Every single one of them is in the ground. Jesus is not. Because of that and because of that alone, Jesus preempts. He is preeminent over every other single voice. Christianity gets in trouble for this. We're too exclusive to say that salvation is solely in the name of Jesus. I, I come against that with two points. Number one is this. In popular culture, you're watching you know, uh, an episode of whatever it is, a medical show. You're watching, you know, some of the older ones, House or ER or, or one, of the, one of the great doctor shows that are on now that I, I don't watch, a whole, don't spend a whole lot of time watching them. When there is some confounding problem, when there is some obstacle that, that no one else can, can figure out and solve, what's the solution? There's always one thing, Right? There's only one thing that can be done to save this person's life. And you do not have, you know, you don't, you don't have a whole bunch of doctors sitting here saying, you know, that's very exclusive. That, that's very limiting. That, that really hurts my feelings that there's only one thing to be able to do. You know, because there, maybe there's lots of other things as well. There's lots of other ways. You don't have to, to cut the cancer out Maybe we could talk to the cancer. You know, maybe we could 
Maybe we could rationalize or we can reason with the kid. This is stupid. It's in the medical shows. Science fiction, you know? Um, when when uh, the, the, ship is in, uh, under, the ship is in trouble or they're under attack, you know, nothing's working, what's the solution? There's one desperate, one untried thing. There's always only one thing to do to pull, you know, victory out of the, the, the jaws of defeat, Right? And we don't sit there and say, man, these writers just took the easy way out. You know, if they would have just come together and they would have, they would have consulted with one another, I bet they could have come up with four, five, ten different ways to, to save the ship and to save the lives and to rescue the day. It doesn't work with the drama of our, of our popular culture, doesn't it? We, we love that, that there's that one thing to do, and they have to, they have to give all to do that. They have to take that risk. And then it works. And you don't sit around and you don't, you don't critique it. That's one thing. The second argument I have against the, exclu- the, 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 the claim against the exclusivity of Jesus is this. He rose from the dead. <laughs> you somehow got to deal with that. You see, it puts Jesus in a singular category, incomparable to anyone else. So look at Jesus and then decide for yourself. If it's true, his claims are true. His teaching is authoritative. That's what we have to go to. He is the one who has gone before. We always look for a guide. We look for a leader. We look for one who has, has blazed that trail. Jesus is the one who died and in death conquered death. Therefore, he's the natural one to look to. Salvation is solely fulfilled in Jesus. And it's not exclusive. It is expansive. It is gracious. It is generous, and it's merciful. Because if, if there was other ways, wouldn't that be chaos and confusion, like the chaos and confusion we have? God would be saying, oh, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you not do that? And then we're all good to go. And somehow you're included in this whole thing. It's God's grace, Tim. But instead, it's through Jesus, looking to Jesus, listening to Jesus, following Jesus, trusting Jesus, believing Jesus. It's looking to Jesus, and it's for everybody. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter the, the amount of, of, of you know, melanin in your skin. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter your intellectual level. Nothing. We are all equally accepted under the grace of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For there is one God, the Apostle Paul wrote, there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. The author of Hebrews writes, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation 
to all who believed in him. It's expansive. It is gracious. It is merciful. It is kind. It is loving that salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus. Because that way, we are all unified. We are all equally loved. We are all equally saved. We are all equally redeemed. We're all equally included. Jesus is the unifier. And his exclusivity is a good thing. It's for all people. Jesus is the name for salvation. But Jesus is also the name for transformation. As Peter and John defended themselves against the high and the mighty and the powerful, those in authority over the Jewish people, the religious leaders themselves were stunned because Peter and John were fishermen, blue-collar, hill folk, actually, because Galilee was the hill region up north. They were unschooled and common. That's nice language. The actual word there for common is the Greek word idiotus. Not exactly the pejorative that it is today, but Peter and John were considered idiots. Because the word idiot just simply means basically common. They, they, they weren't learned men. You see, Galileans were considered the rubes, the rednecks, the backwards people in, in, in the nation. They had a little bit of a different accent, a little bit of a different vocabulary. Peter and John did not speak with the elegance, the, the refined you know, elucidation of education and study. They got up there and they spoke. Now, they spoke with the power of the Holy Spirit. What they spoke was true and convincing, but they still had their accents. They still had their vocabulary. They still came across as hicks. You see, even though the Holy Spirit empowered them, the Holy Spirit did not change them. The Holy Spirit empowered them to use their words, their background, their story, their life, their strengths. Luke's wording is so important in all of this. The leaders took note that these men had been with Jesus. The healed man, the, the lame man who was healed, that's irrefutable evidence. Something happened. We may not be able to explain it, but we have to accept it. Something happened. These men are now giving us the explanation of how it happened. We have to evaluate that. But the courage of Peter and John to stand before that group that really did hold their lives in their hands. They had been with Jesus. And they took no, they took no accolades for themselves. They passed all of the praise, all of the attention on to Jesus. They had been with Jesus. That's what gave them the courage. That's what transformed them. That's what was so different for them. Later in his life, the apostle Peter would write, live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do the good deeds. Don't worry about the, the, the blowback, the feedback, the criticisms. Serve the Lord, live for the Lord, love the Lord, do the Lord's work, follow the Lord's will, and let the Lord take care of it.
Jesus is the one who transforms. But Jesus is also the name for prayer. After all of this, remember Peter and John were detained. They rushed back to probably not the entire church, not all 15,000, no big buildings like that back then, but they, they went back to their, their core group, their home group, so to speak. The, probably the, the other apostles and the, ma- the, the main leaders of the church. And they regaled them with the stories of being arrested and being paraded through the temple in, in chains and then being locked up and suffering a night in jail with no cable and no hot food and no weight room like we have today. Jails back then were much worse. And then they regaled them the stories of having to stand before, stand before the 71 men who held the fate of the nation in their hands. And they say, you're not gonna believe what the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit gave me these words and I was able to take this scripture and I spoke right to them. I looked them right in the eyes. I told them about Jesus and they were dumbfounded. They were confounded. They were confused. Pretty amazing story. And what does the church do? The church hears the stories and immediately breaks out in prayer and praise and worship. The first Christians, one of their most inspiring and one of their most challenging attributes is how they embraced resistance from the world and responded to persecution with praise, prayer, perseverance. No whining, no crying, no appealing to religious rights or civil rights. I'm not saying those things are bad. We live in a society that has those things. We need to utilize them. But Christians, first off, we're really not being persecuted in this country. And if we do face some opposition or some obstacles, some teasing, some pushback, for the Lord's sake, don't whine. Don't complain. Don't cower. But that's what the early church did. Soon the Sanhedrin's reprimand would escalate to actual physical punishment. The response was the same. From the apostles and from all who believe in Jesus, the name of Jesus would be proclaimed even more. We see in chapter five, they, the Sanhedrin, called the apostles in and had them flogged. Flogging is an absolutely barbaric, horrific, inhumane torture. It's basically straps whipped across the back. Painful, awful, ugly, inhumane. Just simply bypassed here in the text. Had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin probably limping, perhaps being carried. Because after flogging, they were not gonna be jumping around for joy, shouting hallelujahs. They would have been, they would have been beaten and broken and bruised and bloodied. But they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The Sanhedrin couldn't beat it out of them. 
they kept talking about Jesus. And the church responding with a prayer asking for more strength, more courage, more boldness, more power. And yes, as good Jews, they were well-versed in the Psalms. And if you've ever spent some time reading the Psalms, you will notice something very, very embedded within the Psalms. We praise you, O Lord. Go get our enemies. We praise you, O Lord. Thank you. By the way, wipe them out. Thank you, Lord, for wiping them out. We love you. It's praising God and praying judgment. The first church did that too. You know, you're all, you, they, you know they've, they've conspired against you, God. We know you're going to get them, but give us strength. Help us talk more about Jesus. It's, it's okay to pray that way. Just make sure you always end with, Lord, give me the strength to stand up and talk more about Jesus. You see, Jesus commanded us to pray in his name. And the church at prayer moves God, and God moves the church at prayer. In your notes, circle that, highlight it, underline it, star it, whatever you're going to do. The church at prayer moves God, and God moves the church at prayer. When we pray together, the believer, the church, and the world will never be the same. And that's our prayer as a, as a people as a congregation, as those united by Jesus, we want to be a church that is praying so that the five cities will never be the same again. And boy, do we have a lot of work to do in this town. Between addiction and corruption and complacency, worldliness, all of those things that are just distracting people and destroying lives, the five cities now more than ever needs us at Oak Park, needs new life, needs grace, needs grace five cities, needs uh, five cities vineyard, it needs coastal community, it needs Oasis and Pearl Chapel and Everyday Church and Central Coast or uh, Shadow Mountain, it used to be called Central Coast Baptist, needs all of these churches to pray and to seek the power and the boldness of the name of Jesus so that our friends can be one to Christ, so that our neighbors can come to the life-saving relationship with Jesus, so that our neighborhoods can be transformed, so that the catalytic converter thieves could not only be caught, but they can be redeemed, so that all of the sellers, especially those who are lacing all their... I almost said a bad word. Um, the sellers that are lacing their stuff with, with, with fentanyl that is killing far too many people. Had a funeral yesterday down in, in Camarillo. I'm talking more about that in um, my weekly email this week. Very good friend of mine died recently, and we had the funeral Saturday. Canal Mountain Funeral Home is ginormous. It's, it's a huge, beautiful thing down in Camarillo near Thousand Oaks talking to the funeral directors, because um, I noticed there was a couple of other funerals going on, and the director said, he goes, it's fentanyl. He goes, almost every funeral we're having right now is fentanyl-related. He goes, it's taking out the young, the old, everything. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking, and it's disheartening. It's happening here in Slow County as well. 
The five cities in Slow County needs transformation. That, trans- that transformation will not come politically. It will not come economically. It will only come spiritually through the people of Jesus in the name of Jesus, telling others about Jesus so that they too can repent and turn from their ways and come to life in Jesus. And that's our prayer. A couple things of application here as we wrap up. Be faithful in worship. God may have something special planned for you. Just like with with Peter and John, they're just going to pray. They did it every day. This one day was different. This Sunday may be a completely routine, normal Sunday for you. Nothing amazing, nothing heaven-shaking will happen for you. But next Sunday, maybe something will. You never know. That's why it's important to show up. That's why it's important to be a part. God will work or could work in your lives in a very special way that you'll probably be completely unprepared for. Because I think that's the way God likes to do it. So be faithful in worship. Second of all, stop longing for or looking to other saviors. There is only Jesus. So fix your gaze upon him and him alone. Number three, spend time with Jesus then. He's changing you whether you feel it or you know it. The difference will be evident to others. I think that's one of the greatest testimonies that anything could ever be said is somebody looks at my life and they say, he was with Jesus. That's a high compliment to seek. Lastly, speak your testimony. What you have personally experienced with Jesus, it's incontrovertible multi-syllabic word that means it's irrefutable. Oh, another multi-syllabic word. It means nobody can talk smack against it because it's your story. Stick to it. They may not like it. They may not believe it, but it's your story. Stick to it. Do you see that's what the apostles did? You're telling us not to speak about Jesus, but we have to talk about what we saw, what we heard. We saw Jesus alive after he died. We heard him speak to us. We heard him tell us to tell others. That's what we got to do. Because the voice from the other side of the grave trumps those on this side of the grave. You don't need to be eloquent. Just merely be authentic. Let your story be your story, and the Holy Spirit will help you too. Powerful stuff here in the the book of Acts. I'd like to have Tay and the guys come back on the stage as we prepare for a time of communion. This is where we take a few moments to center our thoughts on Jesus and what he did for us. It's kind of like a reset. It's a renewing of our faith. It's a repenting of sin. It's a rejoicing in forgiveness. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we take bread, we take juice, represents the body of Jesus that took our sin, the blood of Jesus that paid for our sin, cleansed us from sin. Then it's the body and the blood of Jesus that was reunited in the resurrection, giving us life eternal. So we're grateful, we're thankful for that. Would you please stand?